Chapter Seven, Part One, of the Lost Girl, by D. H. Lawrence. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Natchiki Tawara. Mr. May and Alvina became almost inseparable, and Woodhouse buzzed with scandal. Woodhouse could not believe that Mr. May was absolutely final in his horror of any sort of coming onness in a woman. It could not believe that he was only so fond of Alvina because she was like a sister to him, poor, lonely, harassed soul that he was, a pure sister who really hadn't any body. For although Mr. May was rather fond, in an epicurean way, of his own body, yet other people's bodies rather made him shudder. So that his grand utterance on Alvina was, "'She's not physical, she's mental.' He even explained to her one day how it was, in his naive fashion. "'There are two kinds of friendships,' he said, "'physical and mental. The physical is a thing of the moment. Of course, you quite like the individual, you remain quite nice with them, and so on, to keep the thing as decent as possible. It is quite decent, so long as you keep it so. But it is a thing of the moment, which, you know, it may last a week or two, or a month or two. But you know from the beginning it is going to end, quite finally, quite soon. You take it for what it is. But it's so different with the mental friendships. They are lasting. They are eternal. If anything human, he said human, ever is eternal, ever can be eternal. He pressed his hands together in an odd, cherubic manner. He was quite sincere, if man ever can be quite sincere. Alvina was quite content to be one of his mental and eternal friends, or rather, friendships, since she existed in abstractu as far as he was concerned. For she did not find him at all physically moving. Physically he was not there, he was oddly an absentee. But his naivete roused the serpent's tooth of her bitter irony. "'And your wife?' she said to him. "'Oh, my wife! <laughs> Dreadful thought! There I made the great mistake of trying to find the two in one person.' And didn't I fall between two stools? Oh, dear, didn't I? Oh, I fell between the two stools beautifully, beautifully. And then she nearly set the stools on top of me. I thought I should never get up again. When I was physical, she was mental. Bernard Shaw and cold baths for supper. And when I was mental, she was physical and threw her arms round my neck. In the morning, mark you, always in the morning, when I was on the alert for business. Yes, invariably. What do you think of it? Could the devil himself have invented anything more trying? Oh, dear me, don't mention it. Oh, what a time I had. Wonder I'm alive. Yes, really. Although you smile. Alvina did more than smile. She laughed outright. And yet she remained good friends with the odd little man. He bought himself a new, smart overcoat that fitted his figure, and a new velour hat. And she even noticed, one day when he was curling himself up cosily on the sofa, that he had pale blue silk underwear, and purple silk suspenders. She wondered where he got them, and how he afforded them, but there they were. James seemed for the time being wrapped in his undertaking, particularly in the takings part of it. 
he seemed for the time being contented, or nearly so, nearly so. Certainly there was money coming in. But then he had to pay off all he had borrowed to buy his erections and its furnishings, and a bulk of pennies sublimated into a very small pound-shilling-and-pence account at the bank. The endeavour was successful. Yes, it was successful, but not overwhelmingly so. On wet nights Woodhouse did not care to trail down to Lumley, and then Lumley was one of those depressed, negative spots on the face of the earth which have no pull at all. In that region of sharp hills with fine hill-brows and shallow, rather dreary canal-valleys, it was the places on the hill-brows, like Woodhouse and Hathersedge and Rapton, which flourished, while the dreary places down along the canals existed only for work-places, not for life and pleasure. It was just like James to have planted his endeavour down in the stagnant dust and rust of potteries and foundries, where no illusion could bloom. He had dreamed of crowded houses every night and of raised prices, but there was no probability of his being able to raise his prices. He had to figure lower than the Woodhouse Empire. He was second-rate from the start. His hope now lay in the tramway which was being built from Narborough away through the country, a black country indeed, through Woodhouse and Lumley and Hathersedge to Rapton. When once this tramway system was working, he would have a supply of youths and lasses always on tap, as it were. So he spread his rainbow wings towards the future, and began to say, "'When we've got the trams, I shall buy a new machine and finer lenses, and I shall extend my premises.' Mr. May did not talk business to Alvina. He was terribly secretive with respect to business. But he said to her once, in the early year following their opening, "'Well, how do you think we're doing, Miss Houghton?' "'We're not doing any better than we did at first, I think,' she said. "'No,' he answered. "'No, that's true. That's perfectly true. But why? They seem to like the programmes. "'I think they do,' said Alvina. "'I think they like them when they're there. "'But isn't it funny? They don't seem to want to come to them. "'I know they always talk as if we were second-rate, "'and they only come because they can't get to the Empire or up to Hathersedge. "'We're a stop-gap. I know we are.' Mr. May looked down in the mouth. He cocked his blue eyes at her, miserable and frightened. Failure began to frighten him, abjectly. "'Why do you think that is?' he said. "'I don't believe they like the turns,' she said. "'But look how they applaud them! Look how pleased they are!' "'I know. I know they like them once they're here, and they see them. But they don't come again. They crowd the Empire, and the Empire is only pictures now.' and it's much cheaper to run. He watched her dismally. I can't believe they want nothing but pictures. I can't believe they want everything in the flat, he said, coaxing and miserable. He himself was not interested in the film. His interest was still the human interest in living performers and their living feats. Why, he continued, they are ever so much more excited after a good turn than after any film. "'I know they are,' said Alvina, "'but I don't believe they want to be excited in that way.' "'In what way?' asked Mr. May, plaintively. "'By the things which the artists do. "'I believe they're jealous.' "'Oh, nonsense!' exploded Mr. May, "'starting as if he had been shot. "'Then he laid his hand on her arm. 
But forgive my rudeness. I don't mean it, of course. But do you mean to say that these collier louts and factory girls are jealous of the things the artists do because they could never do them themselves? I'm sure they are, said Alvina. But I can't believe it, said Mr. May, pouting up his mouth and smiling at her as if she were a whimsical child. What a low opinion you have of human nature. Have I? laughed Alvina. I've never reckoned it up. But I'm sure that these common people here are jealous. If anybody does anything, or has anything, they can't have themselves. I can't believe it, protested Mr. May. Could they be so silly? And then why aren't they jealous of the extraordinary things which are done on the film? Because they don't see the flesh-and-blood people. I'm sure that's it. The film is only pictures, like pictures in the Daily Mirror. And pictures don't have any feelings apart from their own feelings. I mean the feelings of the people who watch them. Pictures don't have any life except in the people who watch them. And that's why they like them. Because they make them feel that they are everything. The pictures make the colliers and lasses feel that they themselves are everything. But how? They identify themselves with the heroes and heroines on the screen? Yes, they take it all to themselves. And there isn't anything except themselves. I know it's like that. It's because they can spread themselves over a film, and they can't over a living performer. They're up against the performer himself, and they hate it. Mr. May watched her long and dismally. I can't believe people are like that. Sane people, he said. Why, to me, the whole joy is in the living personality, the curious personality of the artiste. That's what I enjoy so much. I know, but that's where you're different from them. But am I? Yes, you're not as up to the mark as they are. Not up to the mark? What do you mean? Do you mean they are more intelligent? No, but they're more modern. You like things which aren't yourself, but they don't. They hate to admire anything that they can't take to themselves. They hate anything that isn't themselves, and that's why they like pictures. It's all themselves to them, all the time. He's still puzzled. You know I don't follow you, he said, a little mocking, as if she were making a fool of herself. Because you don't know them. You don't know the common people. You don't know how conceited they are. He watched her a long time. And you think we ought to cut out the variety and give nothing but pictures, like the Empire, he said. I believe it takes best, she said. And costs less, he answered. But then, it's so dull. Oh, my word, it's so dull. I don't think I could bear it. And our pictures aren't good enough, she said. We should have to get a new machine and pay for the expensive films. Our pictures do shake and our films are rather ragged. But then, surely they're good enough, he said. That was how matters stood. The endeavour paid its way, and made just a margin of profit, no more. Spring went on to summer, and then there was a very shadowy margin of profit. But James was not at all daunted. He was waiting now for the trams, and building up hopes, since he could not build in bricks and mortar. The navvies were busy in troops along the Narborough Road, and down Lumley Hill. Alvina became quite used to them. As she went down the hill, 
Soon after six o'clock in the evening she met them trooping home, and some of them she liked. There was an outlawed look about them as they swung along the pavement, some of them, and there was a certain lurking set of the head which rather frightened her because it fascinated her. There was one tall young fellow with a red face and fair hair who looked as if he had fronted the seas and the Arctic sun. He looked at her. They knew each other quite well in passing, and he would glance at perky Mr. May. Alvina tried to fathom what the young fellow's look meant. She wondered what he thought of Mr. May. She was surprised to hear Mr. May's opinion of the navvy. "'He's a handsome young man now,' exclaimed her companion one evening as the navvies passed, and all three turned round, to find all three turning round. Alvina laughed and made eyes. At that moment she would cheerfully have gone along with the navvy. She was getting so tired of Mr. May's quiet prance. On the whole, Alvina enjoyed the cinema and the life it brought her. She accepted it, and she became somewhat vulgarised in her bearing. She was déclassée. She had lost her class altogether. The other daughters of respectable tradesmen avoided her now, or spoke to her only from a distance. She was supposed to be carrying on with Mr. May. Alvina did not care. She rather liked it. She liked being déclassée. She liked feeling an outsider. At last she seemed to stand on her own ground. She laughed to herself as she went back and forth from Woodhouse to Lumley, between Manchester House and the Pleasure Palace. She laughed when she saw her father's theatre notices plastered about. She laughed when she saw his thrilling announcements in the Woodhouse Weekly. She laughed when she knew that all the Woodhouse youths recognised her, and looked on her as one of their inferior entertainers. She was off the map, and she liked it. For, after all, she got a good deal of fun out of it. There was not only the continual activity, there were the artists. Every week she met a new set of stars, three or four as a rule. She rehearsed with them on Monday afternoons, and she saw them every evening and twice a week at matinees. James now gave two performances each evening, and he always had some audience, so that Alvina had opportunity to come into contact with all the odd people of the inferior stage. She found they were very much of a type. A little frowsy, a little flea-bitten as a rule, indifferent to ordinary morality, and philosophical, even if irritable. They were often very irritable, and they had always a certain fund of callous philosophy. Alvina did not like them. You were not supposed, really, to get deeply emotional over them, but she found it amusing to see them all and know them all. It was so different from Woodhouse, where everything was priced and ticketed. These people were nomads. They didn't care a straw who you were or who you weren't. They had a most irritable, professional vanity, and that was all. It was most odd to watch them. They weren't very squeamish. If the young gentleman liked to peep round the curtain when the young lady was in her knickers, oh, well... She rather roundly told them off, perhaps, but nobody minded. The fact that ladies wore knickers and black silk stockings thrilled nobody, any more than grease-paint or false moustaches thrilled. It was all part of the stocking-trade. As for immorality, well, what did it amount to? Not a great deal. Most of the men cared far more about a drop of whisky than about any more carnal vice, 
and most of the girls were good pals with each other, men were only there to act with, even if the act was a private love-farce of an improper description. What's the odds? You couldn't get excited about it, not as a rule. Mr. May usually took rooms for the artists in a house down in Lumley. When one particular was coming, he would go to a rather better-class widow in Woodhouse. He never let Alvina take any part in the making of these arrangements, except with the widow in Woodhouse, who had long ago been a servant at Manchester House, and even now came in to do cleaning. Odd, eccentric people they were, these entertainers. Most of them had a streak of imagination, and most of them drank. Most of them were middle-aged. Most of them had an abstracted manner. In ordinary life they seemed left aside somehow. Odd, extraneous creatures, often a little depressed, feeling life slip away from them. The cinema was killing them. Alvina had quite a serious flirtation with a man who played a flute and piccolo. He was about fifty years old, still handsome and growing stout. When sober he was completely reserved. When rather drunk he talked charmingly and amusingly, oh, most charmingly. Alvina quite loved him, but alas, how he drank! But what a charm he had! He went, and she saw him no more. The usual rather American-looking, clean-shaven, slightly pasty young man left Alvina quite cold, though he had an amiable and truly chivalrous galanterie. He was quite likeable, but so unattractive. Alvina was more fascinated by the odd fish, like the lady who did marvellous things with six ferrets, or the Jap who was tattooed all over, and had the most amazing strong wrists, so that he could throw down any collier with one turn of the hand. Queer cuts, these, but just a little beyond her. She watched them rather from a distance. She wished she could jump across the distance, particularly with the Jap, who was almost quite naked, but clothed with the most exquisite tattooing. Never would she forget the eagle that flew with terrible spread wings between his shoulders, or the strange mazy pattern that netted the roundness of his buttocks. He was not very large, but nicely shaped, and with no hair on his smooth, tattooed body. He was almost blue in colour, that is, his tattooing was blue, with pickings of brilliant vermilion, as for instance round the nipples, and in a strange red serpent's jaws over the navel. A serpent went round his loins and haunches. He told her how many times he had had blood poisoning during the process of his tattooing. He was a queer, black-eyed creature, with a look of silence and toad-like lewdness. He frightened her, but when he was dressed in common clothes, and was just a cheap, shoddy-looking European Jap, he was more frightening still. For his face, he was not tattooed above a certain ring low on his neck, was yellow and flat, and basking with one eye open, like some age-old serpent. She felt he was smiling horribly all the time, lewd, unthinkable. A strange sight he was in Woodhouse on a sunny morning, a shabby-looking bit of riff-raff of the east, rather down at the heel. Who could have imagined the terrible eagle of his shoulders, the serpent of his loins, his supple, magic skin. The summer passed again, and autumn. Winter was a better time for James Houghton. The trams, moreover, would begin to run in January. 
He wanted to arrange a good programme for the week when the trams started. A long time ahead Mr. May prepared it. The one item was the Natchiquitoara troop. The Natchiquitoara troop consisted of five persons, Madame Rochard and four young men. They were a strictly Red Indian troop. But one of the young men, the German Swiss, was a famous yodeler, and another, the French Swiss, was a good comic, with a French accent, whilst Madame and the German did a screaming two-person farce. Their great turn, of course, was the Natchiquitoara Red Indian scene. The Natchiquitoaras were due in the third week in January, arriving from the potteries on the Sunday evening. When Alvina came in from chapel that Sunday evening, she found her widow, Mrs. Rowlings, seated in the living-room, talking with James, who had an anxious look. Since opening the Pleasure Palace, James was less regular at chapel, and moreover he was getting old and shaky, and Sunday was the one evening he might spend in peace. Add that on this particular black Sunday night it was sleeting dismally outside, and James had already a bit of a cough, and we shall see that he did right to stay at home. Mrs. Rowling sat nursing a bottle. She was to go to the chemist for some cough cure, because Madame had got a bad cold. The chemist was gone to chapel. He wouldn't open till eight. Madame and the four young men had arrived at about six. Madame, said Mrs. Rowlings, was a little fat woman, and she was complaining all the time that she had got a cold on her chest, laying her hand on her chest and trying her breathing and going, <laughs> to see if she could breathe properly. She, Mrs. Rowlings, had suggested that Madame should put her feet in hot mustard and water, but Madame said she must have something to clear her chest. The four young men were four nice civil young fellows. They evidently liked Madame. Madame had insisted on cooking the chops for the young men. She herself had eaten one, but she laid her hand on her chest when she swallowed. One of the young men had gone out to get her some brandy, and he had come back with half a dozen large bottles of bass as well. Mr. Houghton was very much concerned over Madame's cold. He asked the same questions again and again, to try and make sure how bad it was. But Mrs. Rowlings didn't seem quite to know. James wrinkled his brow. Supposing Madame could not take her part? He was most anxious. "'Do you think you might go across with Mrs. Rowlings and see how this woman is, Alvina?' he said to his daughter. "'I should think you'll never turn Alvina out on such a night,' said Miss Pinnegar. "'And besides, it isn't right. Where is Mr. May? It's his business to go.' "'Oh,' returned Alvina, "'I don't mind going. Wait a minute. I'll see if we haven't got some of those pastilles for burning. If it's very bad, I can make one of those plasters Mother used.' And she ran upstairs. She was curious to see what Madame and her four young men were like. With Mrs. Rowling she called at the chemist's back door, and then they hurried through the sleet to the widow's dwelling. It was not far. As they went up the entry they heard the sound of voices, but in the kitchen all was quiet. The voices came from the front room. Mrs. Rowling's tapped. "'Come in!' said a rather sharp voice. Alvina entered on the widow's heels. "'I've brought you the cough stuff,' said the widow, "'and Miss Huffton's come as well to see how you was.' Four young men were sitting round the table in their shirt-sleeves, with bottles of bass. There was much cigarette-smoke. By the fire, which was burning brightly, sat a plump, 
pale woman with dark bright eyes and finely drawn eyebrows she might be any age between forty and fifty there were grey threads in her tidy black hair she was neatly dressed in a well-made black dress with a small lace collar there was a slight look of self-commiseration on her face she had a cigarette between her drooped fingers she rose as if with difficulty and held out her plump hand on which four or five rings showed she had dropped the cigarette unnoticed into the hearth how do you do she said i didn't catch your name madame's voice was a little plaintive and plangent now like a bronze reed mournfully vibrating alvina houghton said alvina daughter of him as owns the theatre where you're going to act interposed the widow oh yes yes i see miss houghton i didn't know how it was said <laughs> houghton yes miss houghton i've got a bad cold on my chest laying her plump hand with the rings on her plump bosom but let me introduce you to my young men a wave of the plump hand whose forefinger was very slightly cigarette-stained towards the table the four young men had risen and stood looking at alvina and madame the room was small rather bare with horsehair and white crochet antimacassars and a linoleum floor the table also was covered with a brightly patterned american oilcloth shiny but clean a naked gas-jet hung over it for furniture there were just chairs armchairs table and a horsehair antimacassared sofa yet the little room seemed very full full of people young men with smart waistcoats and ties but without coats that is max said madame i shall tell you only their names and not their family names because that is easier for you in the meantime max had bowed he was a tall swiss with almond eyes and a flattish face and a rather stiff ramrod figure and that is louis louis bowed gracefully he was a swiss frenchman moderately tall with prominent cheekbones and a wing of glossy black hair falling on his temple and that is geoffroy geoffrey geoffrey made his bow a broad-shouldered watchful taciturn man from alpine france and that is francesco uh, frank francesco gave a faint curl of his lip half smile as he saluted her involuntarily in a military fashion he was dark rather tall and loose with yellow tawny eyes he was an italian from the south madame gave another look at him he doesn't like his english name of frank you will see he pulls a face no he doesn't like it we call him ciccio also but ciccio was dropping his head sheepishly with the same faint smile on his face half grimace and stooping to his chair wanting to sit down these are my family of young men said madame we are drawn from three races though only ciccio is not of our mountains will you please to sit down they all took their chairs there was a pause my young men drink a little beer after their horrible journey as a rule i do not like them to drink but to-night they have a little beer i do not take any myself because i am afraid of inflaming myself she laid her hand on her breast and took long uneasy breaths i feel it i feel it here she patted her breast it makes me afraid for to-morrow will you perhaps take a glass of beer ciccio ask for another glass 
Chicho at the end of the table did not rise but looked round at Alvina, as if he presumed there would be no need for him to move. The odd, supercilious curl of the lip persisted. Madame glared at him, but he turned the handsome side of his cheek towards her with the faintest flicker of a sneer. "'No, thank you, I, I never take beer,' said Alvina hurriedly. "'No, never. Oh!' Madame folded her hands, but her black eyes still darted venom at Chicho. The rest of the young men fingered their glasses and put their cigarettes to their lips, and blew the smoke down their noses, uncomfortably. Madame closed her eyes and leaned back a moment. Then her face looked transparent and pallid. There were dark rings under her eyes. The beautifully brushed hair shone dark like black glass above her ears. She was obviously unwell. The young men looked at her and muttered to one another. "'I'm afraid your cold is rather bad,' said Alvina. "'Will you let me take your temperature?' Madame started and looked frightened. "'Oh, I don't think you should trouble to do that,' she said. Max, the tall, highly coloured Swiss, turned to her, saying, "'Yes, you must have your temperature taken. And then we shall know, shan't we? I had a hundred and five when we were in Redruth.' Alvina had taken the thermometer from her pocket. Chicho, meanwhile, muttered something in French, evidently something rude, meant for Max. "'What shall I do if I can't work to-morrow?' moaned Madame, seeing Alvina hold up the thermometer towards the light. "'Max, what shall we do?' "'You will stay in bed, and we must do the white prisoner scene,' said Max, rather staccato and official. Chicho curled his lip and put his head aside. Alvina went across to Madame with the thermometer. Madame lifted her plump hand and fended off Alvina, while she made her last declaration. "'Never, never have I missed my work for a single day, for ten years. Never. If I am going to lie abandoned, I had better die at once.' "'Lie abandoned?' said Max. "'You know you won't do no such thing. What are you talking about?' "'Take the thermometer,' said Geoffrey, roughly, but with feeling. "'Tomorrow, see, you will be well.' "'Quite certain,' said Louis. Madame mournfully shook her head, opened her mouth, and sat back with closed eyes and the stump of the thermometer comically protruding from a corner of her lips. Meanwhile Alvina took her plump white wrist and felt her pulse. "'We can practice,' began Geoffrey. "'Shh!' said Max, holding up his finger and looking anxiously at Alvina and Madame who still leaned back, with the stump of the thermometer jauntily perking up from her pursed mouth, while her face was rather ghastly. Max and Louis watched anxiously. Geoffrey sat blowing the smoke down his nose, while Chicho callously lit another cigarette, striking a match on his boot-heel and puffing from under the tip of his rather long nose. Then he took the cigarette from his mouth, turned his head, slowly spat on the floor, and rubbed his foot on his spit. Max flapped his eyelids and looked all disdain, murmuring something about Ein schmutziges italienisches Volk, whilst Louis, refusing either to see or to hear, framed the word chien on his lips. Then, quick as lightning, both turned their attention again to Madame. Her temperature was a hundred and two. "'You'd better go to bed,' said Alvina. "'Have you eaten anything?' "'One little mouthful.' said Madame, plaintively. Max sat looking pale and stricken. Louis had hurried forward to take Madame's hand. He kissed it quickly, then turned aside his head because of the tears in his eyes. 
Geoffrey gulped beer in large throatfuls, and Chicho, with his head bent, was watching from under his eyebrows. "'I'll run round for the doctor,' said Alvina. "'Don't, don't do that, my dear. Don't you go and do that. I'm likely to a temperature.' "'Liable to a temperature,' murmured Louis pathetically. "'I'll go to bed,' said Madame, obediently rising. "'Wait a bit. I'll see if there's a fire in the bedroom,' said Alvina. "'Oh, my dear, you are too good. Open the door for her, Chicho.' Chicho reached across at the door, but was too late. Max had hastened to usher Alvina out. Madame sank back in her chair. "'Never for ten years,' she was wailing. Quoi faire? Ah, quoi faire? Que ferez-vous, mes pauvres, sans votre quichuégain? Que vais-je faire mourir dans un tel paix? La bonne demoiselle, la bonne demoiselle, elle a deux corps. Elle pourrait aussi être belle, s'il y avait un peu plus de chair. Max, liebster, schau ich sehr elend aus? Ach, oh je, oh je. Ach nein, Madame, ach nein, nicht so furchtbar elend, said Max. Manca il cuore solamente al ciccio, moaned Madame. Che natura povera, senza sentimento, niente di bello. Achime, che amico, che ragazzo duro, aspero. Trova, said ciccio with a curl of the lip. He looked, as he dropped his long, beautiful lashes, as if he might weep for all that, if he were not bound to be misbehaving just now. So Madame moaned in four languages as she posed, pallid in her armchair. Usually she spoke in French only, with her young men, but this was an extra occasion. La pauvre Kishwegan, murmured Madame. Elle va finir au monde. Elle passe la pauvre Kishwegan. Kishwegan was Madame's Red Indian name, the name under which she danced her squaw's fire-dance. Now that she knew she was ill, Madame seemed to become more ill. Her breath came in little pants. She had a pain in her side. A feverish flush seemed to mount her cheek. The young men were all extremely uncomfortable. Louis did not conceal his tears. Only Chicho kept the thin smile on his lips and added to Madame's annoyance and pain. Alvina came down to take her to bed. The young men all rose and kissed Madame's hand as she went out, her poor jewelled hand that was faintly perfumed with eau de cologne. She spoke an appropriate good-night to each of them. "'Good-night, my faithful Max. I trust myself to you. Good-night, Louis, the tender heart. Good-night, valiant Geoffrey. Ah, Chicho, do not add to the weight of my heart.' Be good braves all, be brothers in one accord. One the little prayer for poor Kishwagan. Good night. After which valediction she slowly climbed the stairs, putting her hand on her knee at each step with the effort. No, no, she said to Max, who would have followed to her assistance. Do not come up. No, no. Her bedroom was tidy and proper. Tonight, she moaned, I shan't be able to see that the boys' rooms are well in order. They are not to be trusted, no. They need an overseeing eye, especially Chicho, especially Chicho. She sank down by the fire and began to undo her dress. You must let me help you, said Alvina. You know I have been a nurse. Ah, oh, you are too kind, too kind, dear young lady. 
I am a lonely old woman. I am not used to attentions. Best leave me. Let me help you, said Alvina. Alas, Ahime, who would have thought Kishwagan would need help? I danced last night with the boys in the theatre in Leek, and to-night I am put to bed in—what is the name of this place, dear? It seems I don't remember it. Woodhouse, said Alvina. Woodhouse! Woodhouse? Is there not something called Woodlouse? I believe. Oh, horrible! Why is it horrible? Alvina quickly undressed the plump, trim little woman. She seemed so soft. Alvina could not imagine how she could be a dancer on the stage, strenuous. But Madame's softness could flash into wild energy, sudden convulsive power, like a cuttlefish. Alvina brushed out the long black hair and plaited it lightly. Then she got Madame into bed. Ah, sighed Madame, the good bed, the good bed. But cold, it is so cold. Would you hang up my dress, dear, and fold my stockings? Alvina quickly folded and put aside the dainty underclothing. Queer, dainty woman was Madame, even to her wonderful threaded black and gold garters. My poor boys, no Kishwegan to-morrow. You don't think I need see a priest, dear? A priest, said Madame, her teeth chattering. Priest? Oh, no! You'll be better when we can get you warm. I think it's only a chill. Mrs. Rawlings is warming a blanket. Alvina ran downstairs. Max opened the sitting-room door and stood watching at the sound of footsteps. His rather bony fists were clenched beneath his loose shirt-cuffs, his eyebrows tragically lifted. "'Is she much ill?' he asked. "'I don't know, but I don't think so. Do you mind heating the blanket while Miss Rawlings makes thin gruel?' Max and Louis stood heating blankets. Louis's trousers were cut rather tight at the waist and gave him a female look. Max was straight and stiff. Mrs. Rawlings asked Geoffrey to fill the coal-scuttles and carry one upstairs. Geoffrey obediently went out with a lantern to the coal-shed. Afterwards he was to carry up the horse-hair armchair. "'I must go home for some things,' said Alvina to Chicho. "'Will you come and carry them for me?' He started up, and with one movement threw away his cigarette. He did not look at Alvina. His beautiful lashes seemed to screen his eyes. He was fairly tall, but loosely built for an Italian, with slightly sloping shoulders. Alvina noticed the brown, slender, Mediterranean hand as he put his fingers to his lips. It was a hand such as she did not know, prehensile and tender and dusky. With an odd graceful slouch he went into the passage and reached for his coat. He did not say a word, but held aloof as he walked with Alvina. "'I'm sorry for Madame,' said Alvina, as she hurried rather breathless through the night. "'She does think for you men.' But Chicho vouchsafed no answer, and walked with his hands in the pockets of his waterproof, wincing from the weather. "'I'm afraid she will never be able to dance to-morrow,' said Alvina. "'You think she won't be able?' he said. "'I'm almost sure she won't.' After which he said nothing, and Alvina also kept silence till they came to the black, dark passage and encumbered yard at the back of the house. "'I don't think you can see at all,' she said. "'It's this way.' She groped for him in the dark, and met his groping hand. "'This way,' she said. It was curious how light his fingers were in their clasp, almost like a child's touch. So they came, 
under the light from the window of the sitting-room. Alvina hurried indoors, and the young man followed. "'I shall have to stay with Madame to-night,' she explained hurriedly. "'She's feverish, but she may throw it off if we can get her into a sweat.' And Alvina ran upstairs, collecting things necessary. Chicho stood back near the door and answered all Miss Pinnegar's entreaties to come to the fire with a shake of the head and a slight smile of the lips, bashful and stupid. "'But do come and warm yourself before you go out again,' said Miss Pinnegar, looking at the man as he drooped his head in the distance. He still shook dissent, but opened his mouth at last. "'It makes it colder after,' he said, showing his teeth in a slight, stupid smile. "'Oh, well, if you think so,' said Miss Pinnegar, nettled. She couldn't make heads or tails of him, and didn't try. When they got back, Madame was light-headed, and talking excitedly of her dance, her young men. The three young men were terrified. They had got the blankets scorching hot. Alvina smeared the plasters and applied them to Madame's side, where the pain was. What a white-skinned, soft, plump child she seemed! Her pain meant a touch of pleurisy, for sure. The men hovered outside the door. Alvina wrapped the poor patient in the hot blankets, got a few spoonfuls of hot gruel and whisky down her throat, fastened her down in bed, lowered the light, and banished the men from the stairs. Then she sat down to watch. Madame chafed, moaned, murmured feverishly. Alvina soothed her and put her hands in bed, and at last the poor dear became quiet. Her brow was faintly moist. She fell into a quiet sleep, perspiring freely. Alvina watched her still, soothed her when she suddenly started and began to break out of the bedclothes, quieted her, pressed her gently, firmly down, folded her tight, and made her submit to the perspiration against which, in convulsive starts, she fought and strove, crying that she was suffocating, she was too hot, too hot. End of chapter 7, part 1 Read by Tony Foster